it's very nice to be here. I am Cathy Rensenbrink. It's my delight to be here with Deborah Mogak. Let me quickly ask, who was in the Sophie Ratcliffe event earlier on? Wasn't that wonderful? Yes. Now, for all you people, I'm not going to endlessly bang on about the thematic connections between this, that event and this event, because I don't want to aggravate everybody else. So I'm just telling you at the start, won't there be a lot of interesting thematic connections with this one? Enjoy them. Okay. <laughs> Everyone else, please don't now go into a spiral of despair that you weren't here at 10 o'clock this morning. We did have a good time, but now you are welcome to this event and uh, you won't have lost out by not being with us earlier on. And there's a podcast. Oh, there is a podcast, yes. There's a podcast. So you can listen to the podcast of everything that happens here um, later on when they come out. So... We're here now to talk to Deborah Mogark, author of The Carer, author of, I think, if I've counted right, 20 novels, mm -hmm. did I count right? 20 novels, including The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, Tulip Fever, and most recently, the wondrous novel The Carer. Um, could we give her another really welcoming Cornish round of applause? <laughs> Um, I loved this novel when I first read it several months ago. I loved it even more yesterday on the reread. Um, Deborah, would you start off perhaps by just telling us something about the inspiration, the starting point? Well, it's jolly nice being here and the sun's come out. Yeah. Isn't that heaven? Um, my mother, um, who's now dead, she got dementia in her early 80s and I had to find someone to look after at home. And so we found these three Irish carers who, for two years, lived in the house mm -hmm. on sort of, you know, rotor basis. Um, and I, was, I became incredibly involved with them, of course, and fascinated by this intimate emotional relationship that was going on and how complicated it was. Mm -hmm. Because I was both incredibly guilty that there I was, I lived opposite her in London, you know, I could have cared for myself, except I wasn't, because I was busy writing my novels. Um, I slightly resented them because they were costing me so much money. Um, and, and also she seemed to sometimes enjoy their company more than mine and tell them all sorts of things she'd never told me. Um, and also the fact that they started they sort of started dressing her in different sort of clothes and things. And she started looking like a slightly different sort of person. Um, and, and I was, of course, staggeringly grateful to them, hugely grateful, and terribly involved with them. Um, and we had an extraordinary two years until she died because it was, it was any of you who've, who've been in this situation, of which there are many instances, more than I realised when mm. I wrote the book, you'll know that... Living with somebody with dementia is complete nightmare in some ways, but it also has its, it has its blackly comic moments. And I remember, I remember once my mother saying to me in front of them, she said, Debbie, she said, there were two men in my bedroom last night. There was one in the wardrobe and there was one under the bed. I've never believed in threesomes and I'm not going to stop now. <laughs> We had a very, very volatile, intimate, extraordinary life for two years. Me and these three women, whose surnames I didn't know, and I think they, they were called whatever they, Marie and Bridie and things, but they hinted at one point it wasn't even their real names because they were all doing it on, you know, black market and all that stuff. Um, and 
I never saw them again afterwards. You know, mm. the minute she died, they were off. And I thought, what an extraordinary relationship. And I also thought that the fact that, that they, I, we were sort of a different class and different background, and they were leading my mother into a sort of life which she hadn't had. She was a children's writer. She was rather posh. Um, and like Mandy in the book, you know, they sort of started taking her to Nando's and doing scratch cards and all that stuff, <laughs> which, which she loved. <laughs> so who was I to, you know, who was I to be all snotty about it? Um, so anyway, I thought I'd write about it. And I realised when I was writing about it that we practically all are involved in some way. Either we're being cared for or we're the carers or we are guiltily getting someone else to become the godsend who does the job. Um, and that person will have a very, very different life than probably ours. And one finds out interesting stuff. Mm. So we, in the book we have uh, Phoebe. Uh, would you read a little bit to us? Okay. From the beginning, perhaps. Okay. Um, Mandy from Solihull is our carer. Um, Phoebe is a woman of 60, very neurotic. One of my favourite sorts of women, really highly strung and neurotic and actually quite difficult, um, but for some reason vulnerable and um, endearing. She's having an on-off sexual relationship with a man in a hut in the middle of a wood in Wales, <laughs> unsatisfactorily. She's also, she's also, I come from, I've been living until recently in Prestine on the Welsh borders, and it's full of women artists, of which Phoebe is one. Um, and all they do, all they paint, is hares and sheep. <laughs> sheep and hares, hares and bloody sheep. And Phoebe's at it as well, when she's not having sex with Torren in his hut in the middle of a wood. But um, I'm not going to tell you about that yet. I'll tell you a bit more about that later, because I had, <laughs> I had a lot of fun with that. This is, this is Phoebe. We see the, the book is written from Phoebe's point of view and Robert, her equally 60-year-old um, brother. I mean, Robert's 61 and she's 60 or something. OK. The first thing she noticed was her skin. So smooth for somebody of 50. Eerily smooth. But then Mandy had never had children never been married as far as Phoebe knew, none of the normal wear and tear that makes a woman look used. Mandy was not beautiful, far from it, an overweight woman with rosemary west specks, wearing a bobble hat and stripy tights, something vaguely blokey about her. Sometime later, she told Phoebe, I tried to be a lesbian once, but it just didn't gel. Give me a man any day. I like the smell of their armpits. <laughs> Phoebe liked her, truly she did. She'd come to the rescue after her father had had his fall. Two carers had come and gone. Rejoice from Zimbabwe, who talked all through his beloved Radio 4 and fed him some sort of maize meal that clogged up his bowels. <laughs> then there was Teresa from County Donegal, who was having a love affair with a baggage handler from Luton Airport and who sat texting him in a fug of cigarette smoke and reading out the replies while the kettle boiled dry and Dad dehydrated. <laughs> so Mandy came to the rescue, Mandy from Solihull, arriving in her trusty Fiat Panda and bearing homemade shortbread biscuits because her speciality, flapjacks, played havoc with an old boy's dentures. Phoebe, normally wary, was encouraged by this early sign of empathy. Mandy hummed show tunes as the kettle boiled. Blood Brothers was her favourite, about two boys separated at birth. 
she said she'd seen it three times and blubbed like a baby. Phoebe understood later why. At the time, she was simply grateful that this bulky, chatty woman had entered their lives and restored her sanity. Her father's too, for within days, Mandy had become essential. So that's, that's our introduction to Mandy. She's got a noddy dog in the back of her car. She also says things like, I'm a simple sausage. She says, I'm a simple sausage and I speak as I find. Don't you find it annoying when people say I speak as I find? Because they're always going to tell you something terribly unpalatable. Yeah. I know you'd like me to be honest with you, somebody oh, said to me. Oh, I really don't think I would. No, no. <laughs> really winding up for something terrible. Um, so James, Phoebe and Robert's father, who Mandy's looking after, is a particle physicist, was a particle physicist, and now Mandy, uh, they get on very well, despite her being a simple sausage, and she says things like, oh, he was purring like a pussycat over his little pudding. Um, just tell us a little bit more about all of, all of that. It's so unbelievably enjoyable to read on the page, all the sort of the details of this, this sort of like this class mashup, really, isn't it? <laughs> Um, well, J yes, James, who says James Wentworth, very distinguished as, as Kathy's saying, particle physicist about which nobody knows anything. Um, he's retired to his wife's died. He's retired to this one of those dead Cotswold villages that only come alive at weekends when they're coming down in their in their huge top of the range Range Rover Vogues with their waitress shopping bags because they never obviously ever go to the local shops um, with their mutinous teenagers in the back um, and they open up their houses and um, on Sunday night they hightail it back to W11, leaving the village as dead as they found it. Um, and there's usually local celebrity. I remember Kate Moss um, has a house in the Cotswolds and she is awfully indiscreet, but apparently she booked her PA, booked you know, lunch for 23 in the local pub and then nobody, they didn't turn up. And the local pub you know, went bankrupt actually. Mm. Um, so that that the, the, these one the, those Cotswold villages, which, which are staggeringly beautiful, um, and he's there and he's grieving for his wife. So Mandy comes to the rescue after these two. The the Donegal, the the text thing actually happened with, with my mother and this baggage handler. This this carer of one of the three carers was having this very torrid love affair with the baggage handler, and she'd read out his fantastically raunchy texts of what he was going to do to her <laughs> over my mother's, you know, as she was sitting there. And we all thought, we, all, we used to get the giggles, and we all thought it's a better way to go out, to be surrounded by love and passion and juiciness and sex, than, you know, would you like another cup of tea, Charlotte? Yeah. Yeah. You know, all that. Um, so James, uh, so Mandy comes along, and she takes over James's life, she takes him, as I said, they start, they get addicted to scratch cards. She, she takes him to Bista Village. Um, <laughs> which he loves. Which she loves because she's a people person. She's a people person and they hang out and people watch at Bista Village. And then they go to Nando's. He loves that. She takes him to the Hedgehog Rescue Centre in Deutschwich. Um, they, 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 they get out and about and he lives, as I said, this different sort of life. And, and the children, his so-called grown-up children, Phoebe and Robert, are not really grown up at all because they're quite resentful of the fact that their father was too busy being famous and intellectual to ever take any notice of them when they were growing up. Um, uh, is, is actually having more fun with Phoebe than he ever had with them. Mm. Um, so 
So Phoebe takes him on with her marigold gloves and things. But what happens is, and there's a tiny hint of it there, is that they're very, very, very grateful to Phoebe, for, to Mandy, but they seem, they start getting a little bit, a little bit, a little bit unsettled with her because she, she, she's found, James can't go upstairs anymore. He has a bedroom downstairs. And they find that in his bedroom, his filing cabinet has been opened and his documents have been sort of rearranged. And they think, what's Mandy doing rootling around in his mm -hmm. documents where his will is, for instance? So things start getting just slightly murky. Um, but they're all too busy. Robert is writing this unreadable novel. <laughs> Robert, I mustn't laugh at my own jokes, really. Um, <laughs> Robert, Robert, the other child, um, lives in a very, very multi-million house in Wimbledon with his ball-breaking, gorgeous, glamorous, successful wife, Fareed, who is a newscaster, news reader on television, very famous. And every day, Robert <laughs> deserts this beautiful house with its Philippe Stark kitchen and its ensuite bathrooms and its limestone floor kitchen and all that stuff, and solemnly trapes across the lawn to his suppurating old shed where dead wasps drop on his head and the paraffin heater poisons him, trying to write his unreadable Radnisher trilogy novel, um, which is all going to be in Radnisher dialect, set in the, in the 19th century. Um, and and um, Fareed, his wife, rather sneers at this novel um, and rather sneers at his method of working where he's showered with dead insects <coughs> typing away in his shed. But in his shed, he feels free. And he rather longs for the moment that he can tell her that someone wants to publish the novel. And, and she somebody does. look at him in a lovely way. Yes. yes. Do you want to maybe read us? I'll read that a little bit. Because the wonderful thing that happens to Robert is that Phoebe, Phoebe's, um, what, I mean, Robert rather rudely calls this man in the woods Phoebe's fuck buddy, basically because Phoebe just goes to him for sex. And as she says, it does beat the defibrillator awareness evening in the memorial hall. <laughs> um, and um, Phoebe's rather proud of herself that at 60 she's still up for sex in a hut with this Iggy Pop lookalike called Torrin. He's got dreadlocks, he's always chopping wood, he's got one of those frightful dogs that, that, that deposit dead rabbits' heads at your feet and things. He's a wild man of the woods. And Phoebe is sort of, you know, reliving her old hippie. She's a bit of a hippie chick, basically. Um, but what Torren does, which is very useful, is he supplies Robert, Phoebe's um, brother, trying to write this unreadable Radnisher trilogy with old Radnisher dialect words. So he sticks all these words into his book, bring, it brings the book alive, and lo and behold, he gets a publishing deal. It's so thrilling. And his wife... Who as, uh, really regards him with barely concealed contempt and constantly undermines him. Their marriage is not terribly happy. He's very, very surprised that he's got a publisher. Um, and um, it's given to a young, an unknown young uh, editor called Ellie Hill. Um, by Robert. Robert has an agent, gives it to her. And Ellie Hill doesn't reply for a long time about this book about this manuscript she's got. So Robert, I'm reading this bit, it's very short, it's only half a page, but anyone who's written a book will know the agony of the book being with the editor and the editor not replying. Um, all these weeks, 
Robert had made up scenarios for Ellie Hill to explain her silence. She had burned to death in a house fire and nobody had told him because his little novel was hardly a priority. Her computer had been hacked by terrorists and she'd refused to pay a ransom. She'd inadvertently deleted it and was too embarrassed to tell anyone. She'd gone on holiday to Costa Rica and her laptop had been stolen. <coughs> she loved it so much. She was reading it again slowly, relishing every word. <laughs> She'd been stricken by an intestinal parasite and was laid up in hospital, blinded and unable to read. <laughs> she was having a nervous breakdown. She was showing it to everybody at Aintree Books, even the canteen staff, because she thought it was so amazing she simply had to share it. She hadn't even started to read it yet. So that's, that's what's going through Robert's mind. Um, and we will see what happens to his novel, because what happens is there is a huge plot twist, and that throws everything into confusion, as plot twists should do. <laughs> <laughs> um, tell us about... I love the details of this. So Robert's marriage isn't, isn't happy, and one of the ways he tells that is because what, what, how his wife is with her high heels... She has these lamb. How do you pronounce lambutin? Lambutin. 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 She she tap taps. Lambutin. Yes, and she tap taps across the lawn, aerating the lawn with her lambutin boots and things. Um, there's there's a sentence in the book that says that undermining one's spouse is exhausting work for, for, and um, takes its toll on both of you, and they're both undermining each other. They're at that stage in a marriage, when. Um, and I'm a veteran of a couple of marriages. And one, it's, it's, it's a stage when quarrels take on a momentum of their own and you, you can't pull back from them. But mostly it's, it's stacking the dishwasher wrong. She's very keen on dishwasher talk. <laughs> I know, because she talked with Sophie Ratcliffe saying that she promised to talk more about dishwashers. Robert stacks a dishwasher wrong, as everybody does. Everybody stacks them wrong. And he still, he wears sort of awful old tracksuits because that's his work in clothes. And his, his wife, one of the reasons he knows that the marriage is losing its luster is that she doesn't leave him the last strawberry anymore. <laughs> and also, when she gets dressed, she's on very early, she's on the breakfast news on television. So she has to get up really, really early. And usually, she, in the old days, she wouldn't put on her high heels in the morning in the bedroom because she didn't want to wake him up clacking across that marvellous parquet floor that they've had specially laid from aged oak from God knows where. Um, so, but now she does. And she also, when she has a crap in the downstairs bathroom, she doesn't open the window. Um, and he finds this, he finds this, all of this is telling. They're all little things. They're all to do with, with not really considering the other person in the way that you used to. And, um, They've got two children who are noticing that the marriage is atrophying, and the, it's it's very difficult for a man whose wife is very successful, um, who earns a million times more than him, and um, she's a wonderful woman in many ways. I, I like her a lot, but she is successful, and she's quite tart. She said on their first date, um, which is something that a, a friend of mine who was taking out a woman said, as he leant across, as Robert in, in the book, I stole it from real life, leant across the table to stroke her hand in the candlelight. She withdrew her hand and she said, I don't do dote. 
<laughs> she's, she's, she's tough. And Robert's got a lovely dog that's unfortunately died, so he's in grief for that, because, of course, dogs do dote. And Robert's dog would sit there gazing at him as he typed away, as if he was Saul Bellow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Robert, we love dogs. Robert's still uh, very quite tied up with the death of his mother, isn't he? Um, and as, as he says, there's a subtle sense of rivalry that's brought out by terminal cancer. It's, it, the, the, the idea of sort of who does most, who cares most. It's, it's, it's very interesting. I'm sure we've all experienced this, that, that people come out of the woodwork who are good at illness and good at death, and often they're not the people one particularly likes, and they're sometimes not the people who knew the person very well. Um, but they appear, often they're quite useful sometimes mm. because they'll sit there in vigil, you know, you know, beside them for ages and ages and ages. And the, the subtle rivalry I find between family members and between friends and all that is, is comes, comes to the fore when people are ill because, you know, there's some jockeying position of who, who is the most intimate with the person or hears the most detail of their illness, who's sort of asked for most often, um, who knows more about the illness, it's who, who's needed more and stuff. Mm. And about grief, for instance, when their mother died, um, Robert, Robert um, orders a big bouquet of flowers, but Phoebe picks some flowers in the hedgerows where she lives in Wales, a little wilted bunch of wild flowers, which Robert feels puts his now rather corporate-looking um, <laughs> bouquet to shame, you know. And Phoebe, when, when, when her mother is lying um, uh, dead in bed, um, Phoebe spends the longest in there with the body and then comes out, you know, racked with sobs and things. And... Um, and then remembers to say to their father, you know, wouldn't you like to go in and sit with her, which Robert didn't even think about. And so Phoebe, in the grief stakes, the sibling rivalry is still simmering mm. away. And Robert and Phoebe do come to blows. Um, and the, the carer is going to test their relationship, as many things will, because when they're starting to feel a little uneasy about her, they, one of them does, and the other one says, oh, don't be so silly, she's absolutely wonderful partly because they don't want to lose her. Mm. Because if they find out anything unpalatable about her or discover something, um, they'll lose her and then they'll have to start all over again or, God forbid, look after their father themselves mm. and cut his huge, you, you know, his shards of yellowing toenails <laughs> and wash his little paper-thin buttocks and look at all his pills, you know, and all the boxes with the different days of the week, you know, and frankly confusing and remember all that, all that stuff. And also, you know, be with him mm -hmm. in this rather moribund, beautiful Cotswold village day after day after day after mm -hmm. day. Um, because he's, you know, he's getting a bit forgetful. He has these, these signs up, remember signs, like, you know, flies, you know, pills, all that sort of stuff <laughs> that he's got to remember to do. Tell us about the birdsong clock. Well, that's what my mother got. She got, you can get them at the RSPCB. <laughs> It's, it's a clock. You may have seen them. You may even have one. They're strangely fascinating. Each hour is a different garden bird. And so at different times of the day, you'll hear the warbler wibbling at, you know, and it's two o'clock. And the chiff-chaff, three o'clock, you know, blackbird, tea time. And um, 
for, 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 for the children, this is a sign of their father's senility that, that, that this woman has ordered the clock because the cuckoo is sort of, you know, calling from the kitchen when he sort of is going tiny bit. He doesn't actually, he's not madly demented. He's, he's just getting forgetful, but the big D word is what they're looking out for with their gimlet eyes um, because that, that's, you know, the signs of that happening. Um, so the, the clock, but my mother, my mother had one and um, and she was it was a sign to me it was a sign she was going a bit bonkers so I, I did rather find it rather fascinating <laughs> I love birds but for some reason the clock was not her thing at all mm. she started doing odd things that weren't her thing she asked me once what what university does my dog go to <laughs> Both my parents, my parents had a very, very bad, they, they were both writers. My father wrote 120 books and my mother wrote about 40 books and illustrated them. Children's books, really good, funny children's books. And um, they had a, they worked together in my childhood, um, sometimes writing books together. They went to the Galapagos together and wrote a book about it and all sorts of things. And they, they seemed to get on really well. And I thought all parents sat. We, we, we weren't very well off. We had a little cottage outside Watford where we grew up, me and three sisters. And they sat in the veranda tapping away on their typewriters. And these manuscripts would thicken beside them. And I thought that's what parents mm. did, you know. And sometimes I'd find something, if they were writing a children's book, of my own childhood in it. Mm. And I had a lovely piebald pony called Wally and my mother was a great pony drawer and she would draw this pony in the books. Sort of both thrilling and terribly ordinary because mm. I thought that's what parents did. And they always seemed to talk and talk and they had dinner parties and all that. Anyway, after 35 years of marriage, they had a humongously poisonous divorce. Um, and my father immediately got married to somebody else 20 years younger, strangely enough. I don't know why he did that. I know, men usually go off with somebody much, much older, don't they? <laughs> he was a bit of a rarity in wanting a younger woman. Uh. Um, so he buggered off with her. My mother went and had a ghastly second marriage. But um, they both got dementia at the same time because they actually were very, very similar in a weird way. And the age of 81, they got dementia. And they both died at the age of 84, but separately from each other. Mm. Um, so we had it with my father as well. So it was, it was pretty tough. Mm -hmm. Can we hear a little bit more um, on about the sex? <laughs> we all want to, don't we? It's not just me. Um, I, I just loved uh, Phoebe's sex with Torrin. She calls it a malarkey. And again, she doesn't really like the expression fuck buddy, so she decides to rebrand it as off-grid relationship, which sounds a bit better. <laughs> And she, she takes a bit of time to get used to it. She, she says, after a while, it's like pushing open a rusty door on a long, disused shop. <laughs> um, tell, just tell us a bit more about Torrin and that whole setup in the van. And then, then of course, she realises that she sees a, a neighbour's car going by and the indicator is another woman is going down to Torrin's hut. Pam, a matronly quilt maker is also visiting Torrin in his heart. Mm. And so are many of the women in her little town. I've been living in this town, Prestine, on the Welsh borders, which is heaven, and which is a bit of a sort of old hippie town. And as I said, there are quite a lot of women of that sort of age. And I do know, I know two men um, who 
live still, and they're from the, they've been living there since the 70s. Um, and they're still living, one of them lives in the back of an old van in a wood, and another lives in a hut in a wood, very like Torren's hut, um, in a wood which actually we've all now bought, me and 20 other people in the town, because he's now moved off to another bit of Wales. Anyway, um, Torren, the, both these men, you know, they still smoke monster spliffs in their now toothless gums, with their now <laughs> toothless gums, you know, and they've all got frightful arthritis and things, and they're still living the old hippie thing. And you have to give it to them, really, because they're in their mid-70s. Um, they're still living that life, and Torren, he lives in this wood, this ancient, beautiful ancient Welsh wood, um, and... All through the brambles, under the brambles, you can see bits of dismembered motorbike and a bit of polytunnel from his days as a local drugs lord and some blueberries from his days when he was trying to grow blueberries for money and things like that. And in the hut, um, in his hut, he's got, you know, old copies of Bob Dylan lyrics and stuff. But also Phoebe, who's, who is twigging by now, the other, she's not the only visitor to his, to his hut. Um, and she spied a pack of Viagra behind his frying pan. Um, so, and she sees some signs of, of other women, like, like there's, a, um, there's a copy of the colour purple, you know, and, she, and, and things like that, that he wouldn't buy. Um, and I think there, there's a bottle of, of there's a pack of, of, of tube of lipstick or something, which not, no w woman pristine would buy anyway. But but anyway, she sees it looks at the spore of other women, and she has to realise that you know, fair enough, you mustn't be jealous and things. But like all of us, everyone struggles with jealousy, however much they cover it up. Um, and Torren always seems you know really pleased to see her. He's an easygoing fellow. Mm. Um, but he will have his comeuppance later, and so will she. And there's something happens that, that completely sabotages this relationship. And it's, it is pretty un, unhappy. But, I mean, not unhappy, unsatisfactory. Mm. Um, uh, but there is a, a moment that, that she... Uh, he stands her up. They, they have to go to a motorbike show together or something. Anyway, he stands her up. And he comes round to her house where she lives to apologise. And just for a moment, it's as if it's a real relationship. Mm. And it's rather touching then, mm -hmm. because he apologises and, 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 and she says, well, you know, it's not as if I'm the only one. And he said, well, actually, I'm really very fond of you. And just for a moment, they start to be close in a way that she wasn't mm. thinking they would. And then all hell breaks mm. loose because something happens. Because mm -hmm. it's a novel. Yeah. <laughs> uh, tell us about all the shenanigans around the new Lidl, the possibilities of the new Lidl. Well... This is, this is a plot. This is a, actually, it's interesting you ask this because I, writers can be very, very environmentally good at recycling. I've recycled things from other books. And um, <laughs> long, long ago, um, my youngest sister, she wanted to stop something happening, maybe a, a, a houses being built or whatever near her where she lived in the country. So she had the idea that in this wood, where this, which was going to be destroyed, um, she would find some great crested newts and import them and put them in the pond. They are, as we know, a very protected species. The wood then becomes, is designated a site of special scientific interest, and they can't build the motor or whatever it was. I can't remember what it was, because I then used it. So I then used it 
um, in a novel called The Ex-Wives. And um, it's a plot. Um, it's, it's a bit of a plot. Um, a woman called Lorna uses it to stop a murder coming, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, um, it was... It was um, I then put it, I think I put it into a short story. No, I did it as a short story first. Then I put it into a, into a novel. And then I thought, it's such a good idea. I'm only using this. I'm only stealing from myself. Nobody can sue me. I'm not going to sue myself. And so, and so, um, Phoebe has the idea of doing that and enlists Torren, who knows the countryside really well, to find these newts. And um, because a little is going to be built in her little darling town. And it's, of course, it's a class thing because all the middle class women painting their hairs and sheep and the beardy herbalist blokes, they're all beardies, of course, they're, um, they're all objecting to it because they think they must shop locally and stuff. Um, but all the people who have less money, um, working class, they all want little because little's great. Um, and so what they do, what Phoebe and her, um, and Torrin and her family do, is in the uh, expanse of concrete next to a council estate where this little is going to be built, sort of cracked concrete with buddly and things, there is a pond, there is an old pond. So they get the newts and they put them in, um, hoping that'll work. That also goes wrong, because it's a novel, because everything goes wrong. Um, but I do think it was rather good sort of a harmless sabotage for things. And in our little, in this little town in Prestine, like many, many, many towns, the high street is very threatened. Mm. Um, and so we're always fighting against big supermarkets coming and sucking the life out of the local shops. The local shops are so nice. The greengrocer, when I went in once, he's very, they're very jolly there. And I said, I've run out of parsley. He said, oh, well, oh, Debbie, go to my house in the front garden and pick some, you know. <laughs> and and it's, it's just... It's just like that, and you don't get that in Little, do you? <laughs> <laughs> Strangely enough. <laughs> so we have all this. So all this is going on. We've got Phoebe and Torrent having the sex, and we've got Robert writing the novel and knowing that the high heels behaviour means that the marriage is over. And we've got Mandy making everything cosy and suburban, doesn't she? Auntie Macassas making an entrance into the house. And then just these seeds of worry because they find out that Mandy was left a flat by someone else that she looked after, don't they? And that rather makes that them twitter. That spooks them. She's left, a, she's left a flat in Droitwich, in fact. Um, Droitwich I keep mentioning because I just find it intrinsically comic name. <laughs> um, and so they, they think this is a bit funny because also the local hotelier who's a chap called In Their Little Town, in Phoebe's Little Town. Robert lives in Wimbledon, Phoebe lives in Wales. Um, uh, he's been left a hotel by somebody. He was, you know, somebody left him a and b which he turned into a hotel. Um, in another book, which is a character that actually was in another book called Buffy, and I got so fond of him that he reappears in this book, because sometimes characters... You can't get rid of them. They're like guests at a party. You come downstairs in the morning, they're still there. <laughs> you know, they're drinking the dregs or anything, or maybe having some orange juice filch from your fridge and things. Um, you can't get rid of them. This chap, Buffett, anyway, he's got it himself. They start to feel even more unsettled because, as I said, papers have been displaced upstairs. Mm. Mandy's been binging on Garibaldi biscuits in, in the, their father's bedroom. They see the crumbs and things. And as I said, you know, filing cabinets have been opened. Um, 
so they get very suspicious when they hear that she's been lent this flat. Mm -hmm. um, and this does unite them. What happens is that Robert and Phoebe are quite, they're quite tetchy with each other, you might have gathered. And, um, and Phoebe um, and Mandy will draw them together, their suspicions in the end. And Mandy will point that out to them because she speaks as she finds. <laughs> and she'll also point out to Robert that he's unhappily married and it's fine to be on your own. Mm. Um, which it doesn't go down very well with Robert, but it's so true. It is true, actually, in his case. Um, Mandy is a truth teller, isn't she? She is. Unwelcome truths often, but, but truthful, because she cuts through all that crap. What it's, I mean, what it's partly about, it's about the self-indulgence of the middle class, because I know a lot of people who are still fidgeting away doing stuff that nobody wants, you know, all that. But also... Um, peevishly still blaming their parents for things that have made them unhappy in their lives. Mm. And I'm staggered that they're still banging on about the fact that their father didn't come to sports day when they're young. And these are people in their 70s. <laughs> <laughs> They'll be dead soon themselves. Shut up. <laughs> Give them a chance. They're, you know, we all make faults. You know, we all have faults. You should have learnt by now. My, one of my many, many theories is that an amnesty should be drawn up. Age 34. I think the perfect age is 34. Where you forgive your parents everything and treat them with humanity as other human beings with their foibles and their fa failures. And what a, what a relief that would be for everybody. Mm. And so they whinge about their parents. Robin and Phoebe, a bit whingy about James not turning up, and their mother, who's now dead, being rather cold and aloof because her mother was very, very clever. Double first to Oxford, blue stocking, all that. She gave it up, because that's what women did then. She gave it up to look after, resent, rather resentfully, these two children who she was not a very good mother to, not a natural mother. She was fine, nothing awful happened, she just wasn't a natural mm. mother. And so the children grew up feeling that they were, their mother was rather cold and their father was rather absent because he was always going away um, and didn't come to sports days and stuff like that. Well, tough. Get over <laughs> it. Um, and so, they're, but they're, they are united with Mandy. But, but one of the themes is the fact that these uh, people who endlessly analyse relationships and things and are so neurotic... So, uh, don't do any good to anybody. And Phoebe and Mandy, God, I can't believe it. Mandy is a straightforwardly good person who is there to tend other people and make them better and look after them. Mm. And, and she rather shows up these two rather self-indulgent neurotic people so busy doing that art that nobody wants to, to buy or read um, in any way. And so it's, 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 it's got some of that. And it's got somebody who... Uh, for instance, I'll give you an example with Mandy. In the local village, this, this, as I endlessly say, this dead village, it's actually not dead because Mandy gets very friendly with everybody there. Bianca from Hungary, who's working in the local pub, who's having an on-off love affair with a man who washes the cars in the Sainsbury's car park in Banbury <laughs> and who's treating he's a love rat, basically, treating her really badly. And then there's somebody who's got a... There's a woman who's become a lesbian and run off with somebody at the riding stables. There's another woman. She, Mandy knows them all. The next-door neighbour, who James, the intellectual chap, didn't even know in this cottage, 
Mandy gets to know him and knows how that he, he met his wife when they both were having dialysis because his new wife has got no kidneys at all. How extraordinary is that? Mandy knows everything. She uncovers this village and, and she says to Robert, you should write a novel about this village. Um, because she's, a, as, as she has constantly said, she's a people person. And she, and, and Robert and, and, and Phoebe are a bit too snotty to find out much about this village and they only visit it anyway because they don't ever live there. Um, so it's, it's, it, it's, it's about class. I mean, a lot of my novels have, you know, a lot about class and, and all that stuff, which thrums away underneath practically everything. Um, and good people in the world, and unneurotic people, because nearly everybody I know is really neurotic. Mm. Um, and I know one or two people who are not, and how nice it is for them. <laughs> They're simply happy. They love their parents. They've never questioned anything about their upbringing. They've said, well, they've done the best they can. They love them. They, love, they haven't got anything to say nasty about anybody. They're really, really nice and happy. I mean, most people I know are miserable as hell. Do you think, um, do you think it's fair to say that uh, quite a lot of writers are quite neurotic? Oh, no, surely not. <laughs> <laughs> writers particularly so tiring, <laughs> isn't it? It's so tiring. <laughs> Novelists are a very sunny crowd. <laughs> They're a very sunny crowd. They're really, really sunny and simple, and they love everybody. They're never jealous of other people's <laughs> novels. Um, they never say, oh, that Ian McEwan. <laughs> never. Wouldn't cross their lips. They never go into bookshops and look at other people's books and drop them behind the counter so nobody can get them. They never read the Sunday Supplement reviews and literally throw up with fury. <laughs> Um, ah, no, no, they're lovely people. <laughs> it did feel like you were having a lot of fun with Robert writing all the writerly bits. Tell us a bit more about, about it. Well, he finds, he's, he set himself this hard task, you see. He doesn't really know anything about Radnisher, Powys, but it used to be Radnisher. But he, but he was brought up, I forgot to mention this, Phoebe and he were brought up having holidays in Wales in this place, Hafod, near Crickhall, a cottage which the parents bought. And that was a place where they were free to muck about and cow, put sticks in cow pats and swim in the river and stuff. And Robert knows Wales from this, but he doesn't really know anything about Wales at all. And it's right on the borders anyway, it's almost England. Um, <clears throat> but he set himself this task of this Radnisher trilogy because he just has. Mm. Idiot, really, because who's going to want to read it? Um, and what he finds is that his characters, he's, his hut at the end of his garden in this huge Wimbledon house sets him free, horrible subsiding hut, as I said, poisoned with paraffin fumes and everything. He's free there. He feels that his characters are waiting for him and he will join them as he traips across his lawn. Um, but actually, they haven't come alive at all. And he's fooling himself. He got the names Alerg and Cadon and Chinos and stuff from Google. Um, he doesn't really know anything about Wales. It was just a holiday cottage. They were the, you know, the hated incomers, the holiday people. Um, hence him having to ask Torren. And his novel is refusing to come alive. It's, it's a novel filled with castrations, blood, butchery, 
um, you know, death, snowdrifts, mud, mud, more mud, bullocks being castrated, all that stuff. Um, chickens having their necks wrung, virgins being ravished, and things. All in the knee-deep mud of a Radnorshire farming community 200 years ago. He doesn't know the first thing about them. Um, and he thinks that they'll come alive. What brings them alive are these dialect words for mud, you know, slaughter, um, skinning, all that sort of stuff. Um, and that helps. And suddenly his characters do come alive and they start to do what is the lovely thing when you're writing a novel, which is they start to behave interestingly, sometimes in ways you're not expecting, pushing his plot around in ways he hadn't expected. So it's not just chess pieces moving around in his plot. They're, they're messing it up themselves. They've got life and all starting to breathe. And so he's, he's sort of on a bit of a roll. And he thinks, maybe my wife will now respect me instead of this borderline contempt. Because he's really doing it to show his father, who he's always felt inferior to, because his father's so successful. You can see how neurotic he is. And his wife, who is so successful as well, that he too can produce something of worth. Um, and so it starts going well. He gets his book deal. He, he's only written three chapters. He gets his book deal. And then something awful happens, as I said. And something terrible happens to his, his novel. I'm terribly sorry for him, poor Robert. He, he's, a, he's an unachieving man in a world where a lot of women are achieving a lot. Mm -hmm. And I, I know a lot of people like that. Because nearly all the women, I don't know if it's true with the people here, but... In my life, most of the women I know earn more than the men and are more successful, actually, mm -hmm. you know, in worldly terms. They, you know, they're doing interesting work and sometimes the men are, are not. Mm -hmm. um, and it's tough. It's tough. Men feel pretty redundant sometimes. Mm -hmm. And Robert feels totally redundant. Um, and it's not helped having this wildly successful father who is much loved and very charming and twinkly. Lovely, gorgeous professor. Everybody adores him. Tell us about, would you tell us about how you, 20 novels, uh, tell us how they get done. Tell us a bit about the writing routine. Well, this one I wrote very quickly. It was heaven. It was such fun to write, which, which they aren't all. Um, uh, people don't like to hear it's fun writing novels. They want us to suffer a bit. Um, <laughs> but I did have fun writing. Um, some of them are quicker. And some of them are much, much slower. Um, I, I, I sort of ruminate for months and months. And what I find very useful, because V.S. Pritchett wrote, and he was no slouch in the wonderful writing department, that there's no such thing as plot. There's only character. And if your characters are solid and living and breathing enough, they will lead you into the plot. They will tell you their plot. And they will be your ghostwriters. And that's always cheering, because I think people are rather spooked by plots. Mm. Um, and actually, there's, as, as we know, there's only very few plots in the world. You know, the Cinderella plots, whatever they mm. are. Um, and you really don't have to worry too much. I, I do like a plotty book. Mm. This is a plotty book. I like books with strong plots. And I like books that, that at the end have a big twist. And, and everyone goes, <gasps> um, But you do have to know the characters mm. first. And, it's, and it's, it's very helpful. What I do for months before I start writing, um, I'll walk around and live my normal life as a character. And, and so I may be, you know, a rather portly, bearded, middle-aged, failed actor. 
<laughs> and I'll walk around being that, and I'll go to the shops and things and everything. Because I'll see the world through his eyes. I'll, I'll think what he's thinking. And that helps. And, and soon, with any luck, doesn't always happen, I'll know what they'd be like if they were coming in the door here mm. and how they would react and what they'd be thinking of us and, and who they'd like and this, you know, all sorts of stuff. And that's when it starts really sort of cooking. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the really interesting thing about that, and I've taught quite a lot, you know, when I teach people, or tutor, you know, do workshops and things, um, that if you plunge into writing a novel too early, before you know those characters, all hell breaks loose because you don't know what they're going to do and they won't be there to tell you. Um, they can do anything. They can go to Greenland. They can become a lesbian. They can slit somebody's throat. They can do anything. And it's chaos because you can write about anything at all. That's when you sit there frozen in front of your laptop thinking, what are they going to do? I have no idea because the possibilities are so endless that you got... Mm. So once you know them well, you will know what they're going to do. And I have to know the end before I start. Some writers don't. They, they push their little boat into the, into, the, into the rocky sea and off it goes. And they have to fend for themselves. I don't know how they do that. People like Ruth Rendell did, and she wrote very plotted thrillers, you know. Um, I have to know the end because, and some of the bare bones of the plot, because in the end, in the very beginning, that end will be in, 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 inherent in the book, in, in the story. We're obviously not going to let, let out what it is, but if that person is going to go to Greenland or become gay or become a lesbian, slit something or whatever, it will be, it will be there. Mm -hmm. it'll, it'll just be there in the words you choose for them and the words they choose for themselves, and the way things go. Um, and you have to know what's going to happen to them, mm. I find. But everybody does it differently. It's fascinating. Other people can plot hugely. Other people, as I said, don't have any plot at all. But I do have to know what's going to happen to them. Fascinating stuff. Now, would anyone like to ask Deborah a question? I think we have a microphone at the back. Yes, I've got a hand over there. Um, you seem to obviously use your surroundings quite a lot. Do you ever run into trouble with anybody in your neighbourhood who's <laughs> recognised themselves in one of your books? Well, funnily enough, no. Partly, there's two answers to that. One is they don't recognise themselves. There's three answers. Two is they're always changed because it's very difficult if you know somebody well writing about them because we're a mass of contradictions. It's like reading newsprint, or what used to be newsprint, up close, and the words become all little dots. People you know well are those little dots. They are hugely contradictory. For instance, I've got a sister who is very parsimonious, and she lives on lentils and recycles her lavatory water. Her, 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 her <laughs> electricity bill is 40 pounds a year or something. She's unbelievably <laughs> abstemious. And yet she said to me the other day, she said, Debbie, she said, I can't remember if I lent this friend of mine 600 or 6,000 pounds. <laughs> How extraordinary is that? Totally contradictory to the abstemious person. That's a human being. How difficult that is to encapsulate without the reader getting completely thrown and not being able to make sense of the person. Because what you try to do with characters 
is to make them recognisable enough so that people get to grips with them, but then cut against it and rub around the edges so that they get more blurry and more contradictory, but you do have the basic person who they understand. And that basic person hopefully will do some quite surprising things that are slightly contradictory, because um, you don't want it to be cliched. But the third reason is that if they do recognise themselves, they are really chuffed. <laughs> I'd be thrilled to be in somebody's book. Nobody's ever written about I would love it, even if it's not terribly flattering. Um, because it, it's a sort of immortality. It's really, it, it's, I would be thrilled. I mean, occasionally I have a quote on the front of somebody's book saying this is jolly good or something. Thrilling, much more thrilling than having a book published. I'm on somebody <laughs> else's book. Oh, I'm a real person. Because one thing that unites all novelists is that we don't feel we're real people. And we don't feel we're doing a proper job. And we all feel that somebody is going to come and feel our collar in the old Inspector Plod way and say, do you really think you can get away with this? You know, because we're making people up who don't exist and we're getting people like you to pay money to read about them. <gasps> How extraordinary is that? And you do. Um, and I do with other people's lovely novels. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing to do. And we do feel that, 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 that we're getting away with something quite implausible and um, uh, unlikely and marginally criminal in a way. I don't know. <laughs> it's most extraordinary. Anyway, so that's the reason. But they're usually disguised and they're usually not. It's much easier making somebody up from scratch, actually. Much easier. But I might, I might nick a trait of somebody. Um, I mean, for instance, I did, when I wrote Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, the, the book is very different to the film. And in, in it, that there's a Parsi um, hotel keeper called Minu. And I'd lived in Pakistan, India. I'd, I'd, the other characters were fine and everything. And I sort of felt I knew him. I could not get him. I, he just wasn't coming alive, like poor Robert in his shed. But um, in one scene, this man, He's the manager of this hotel, this best exotic hotel. He's leaning down to get something behind under the desk. And, and I saw him doing this, and I saw that, that he had quite sort of a lot of hair products, very shiny hair. And, I, and shiny I thought he had shiny shoes. And I thought, I've got it, he's vain. He's vain about his appearance. And what he did, and suddenly his backstory came to me, which is he was so vain that he went to a shoe shop in Bangalore, where the book is set, and he saw this nice pair of shoes. They were just a little bit too small, um, but they made his feet look lovely. And so he bought them, and they gave him frightful corns. He was betrothed to a nice Parsi girl, his family's um, choice. Um, but his corns hurt so much, he went to a shropodist. And the shropodist was a feisty, buxom, rather gorgeous Hindu woman. And as she did his corns, he fell in love with her. A funny trajectory, I know, a combination. <laughs> Doesn't happen to all of us, but he did. And so he dumps the Parsi bride-to-be, much to his parents' fury, and marries his family's fury, and marries this Hindu woman who actually leads him a merry dance and is a bit of a ball-breaker. Um, and he's not very happy. So I knew all that. All that came to me by seeing that, that he'd got too much hair products in his hair. And suddenly he came alive. His past came alive. I understood the marriage much better, and we were off. And it was a lovely feeling, like, you know when you're in the house and the boiler 
comes to life. You know, that lovely <laughs> murmur. Yeah. Suddenly that was happening, and I warmed up like the room in a house. I can carry on this analogy. Than <laughs> I might stop now. I've probably got time for one lightning quick question. Yes, Barbara, if you would. I can't resist the opportunity to ask a powerful woman her, why she supports dignity in dying. Well, because I think that we, I, I mean, powerful or not, um, because I think I've, I've thought long and hard about this and I've, I feel that we ought to have control over our own death. And I feel that <clears throat> my generation and the generation of are changing, are changing um, the way everybody feels. We're all, we're all changing. Public opinion is hugely ahead of the government, hugely. Um, because everyone I speak to would feel much happier. Terry Pratchett wrote very, very well about this, that if you have the means, if you know that, that, that you can die when you choose yourself, you may not avail yourself of that choice, but it makes you much happier to know that. And we treat people as animals and we keep them alive for all sorts of reasons that we know, and we all know cases of this, and it's absolutely ghastly. So dignity in dying is quite a modest um, in their proposals, actually. They're, they're, you know, it's not hugely radical, but I do support them hugely. Look them up if, if you don't know about them. Thank you. I feel that would very interesting. You launch us into another different I event. Know. <laughs> I feel I should just invite a few hand-selected panellists and then we could then talk about whether or not we want to be in charge of the manner of our own dying. I do, as you can maybe tell. Um, but sadly, there is, ask for that for next year. Patrick, <laughs> can we come back next year and talk about death? Um, but this has been a, I mean, this has just been wonderful. It's been wonderful to be with all of you. It's been a great pleasure for me to be in this tent today, uh, chairing different events and being an audience in this room to listen to Barbara Hoskins, which was a great joy. And it's been lovely to be with you. And before you hop foot over to the book area to buy Deborah's book, The Carer, in vast quantities for all your friends, would you just join me in applauding yourselves for being lovely and her for being amazing? Thank you, thank you. Thank you, Kathy.